This morning's gospel reading comes from 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. The word of the Lord. This is my first time uh, to preach for you. I'm very excited. My family and I moved here over the summer, and we've been attending Grace and Peace since October. And so we've loved this community, getting to know some of you, uh, learning the gospel together, and participating in community life as we grow in faith. So it's a, pre- a privilege for me this morning to preach for Tim while he's away on vacation. Uh, last week, Tim uh, opened up to us uh, Resurrection Hope and focused us on reflecting on Easter, and focused us on that Jesus' resurrection uh, heals our tears and satisfies our souls most deeply. And so today I want to continue our Easter reflection by looking at uh, a famous uh, section of scripture from 1 Corinthians 15, which is a chapter all about resurrection hope. So we want to extend our meditation on resurrection Easter hope this morning. And uh, before I do that, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for Jesus, the resurrected one. We pray that his resurrection, uh, power, and hope would change our lives this day. Give us insight into this passage. Holy Spirit, work upon our hearts using the gospel to change us and to bear fruit uh, to uh, good works and and to live and love and serve Jesus all the days of our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34, 
And uh, to orient us to this passage, I want to ask you two questions that will help get us into this passage. I want you to think about what the answer, what your answer is to this question. What do you believe will happen to you after you die? Based on what you believe, how does that change your perspective and the way you live your life in the present? So think of those two questions. Actually answer it for yourself, whether you're a Christian or not, wherever you are in your faith journey. What do you believe will happen to you after you die? And based on that belief, how do you live in the present? In this passage, Paul is going to address those questions from a Christian perspective. And what he's going to tell us is the answer to those questions is is beautiful and glorious and beyond our imagination even, as he speaks about this resurrection of the dead and the hope of it in Jesus. And so we can say in this passage, if you want a one-sentence summary of this passage, it would be this. Christ's resurrection guarantees a future, future renewal of all things, providing hope in the present. Jesus' resurrection guarantees a future renewal of all things, providing hope in the present. And what I want to do is take this theme and look at it in four aspects, sort of four guarantees that arise because Jesus is risen from the dead. Let's consider the first one. First, Christ's resurrection guarantees our, our future bodily resurrection. Christ's resurrection guarantees our future bodily resurrection. Look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, last Sunday and even this morning, we, along with all Christians around the world, declared this. He is risen, to which you responded, he is risen indeed. Where does that come from? This verse, Christ in fact, Christ indeed in reality has been risen from the dead, is raised. Now the biblical and Christian understanding of resurrection is that Jesus was literally, bodily, truly raised from the dead. He came back from death into life perfected in his human person, never to die again. That's the Christian belief of resurrection. What's really important for you to know about this is that idea of resurrection, a literal bodily coming back from the dead, is the only understanding of the word resurrection in the ancient world. Whether you believe it or not, whether you're a Jewish person, a first century Christian, a pagan, or a Greek, When you use the word resurrection, you meant a literal coming back from the dead into a bodily new life. Now, why is that important for us? In our culture, we can use the word resurrection all kinds of ways. So, for example, some people say, oh, it's like reincarnation, resurrection. Or it's a symbolic idea of, of death turning into a beautiful new life. Or when applied to Jesus, some people use it that say that, well, it means that Jesus was a good man and a good teacher whose teaching passed through death into life. It's more of a symbolic concept. Now, it's okay to use all those nuances of the word resurrection today, but that's not what Paul is meaning here. When he says that Jesus was raised from the dead, he means literal bodily resurrection from the dead. And so what's important for us today is whether you're a Christian or not, if you want to be fair to a fundamental teaching of Christianity, it's that 
Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Christianity stands or falls on that, actually. So if, if that's where we are, then let's think a little bit more about this. Um, in, our, in our present world, a good cultural icon who has wrestled, wrestled with this idea of Jesus' little resurrection, uh, who you know and who is well regarded for his philanthropy, is actually a Bono, the lead singer of the rock band U2. A few years ago, he gave an interview when the issue of faith came up. And this is, listen to how he talks about Jesus. Bono begins, Of course there was a historical Jesus. The person of Christ is my way to understand God. Do you pray? Yes. To whom or to what do you pray? I pray to Christ. What or who was Jesus as far as you're concerned? I think it's the defining question for the Christian is who was Christ? And I don't think you'll be let off easily by saying he was a great thinker or only a great philosopher. But because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the Son of God. He either, in my view, was the Son of God or he was nuts. I find it hard to accept that all the millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years, have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just don't believe it. So therefore, it follows that you believe he was divine? Yes. And therefore, it follows that you believe he rose physically from the dead? Yes. Yeah, I have no problems with miracles. I'm living around them. I am one. So when you pray, you pray to Jesus? Yes. The risen Jesus? Yes. And you believe that he made promises that will come true? Yes, I do. Now what's so helpful about this interview is that Bono clearly articulates some of the fundamental aspects of Christianity. That he's praying to the risen Jesus who made promises that are contingent upon his resurrection in history. That might be helpful for you today if you're kind of investigating Christianity. Well, if you look back again at verse 20, notice how Paul links resurrection in the past with our resurrection in the future. Look what he says. Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is a Christian metaphor for death. It speaks of the restful, peaceful nature of death in heaven, the life of, life of heaven after death, a peaceful rest with Jesus in heaven. But specifically, Paul says that Christ is the first fruits of those who have died. Well, what does that mean? We don't really live in an agrarian world anymore, so that metaphor is kind of unknown to us. What does it mean that Jesus is the first fruits? Well, think about a farming society. Think about harvest time. The very first sheaf of grain that's harvested is called the first fruits. And it's harvested in advance of the entire harvest to come. In the Old Testament era, the first fruits that were harvested were given back to God as a thanksgiving offering, saying we believe and trust in you to bring the full harvest in. So then what is Paul saying that God has planned in Jesus? If Jesus is the first fruits, who are we? We're the whole harvest. So we can put it this way. God has planned a giant, once and for all, end time resurrection event where all God's people will be raised from the dead. 
Jesus was raised in advance before all of us so that he becomes a down payment, a deposit guaranteeing our future resurrection from the dead. Is my mic going in and out? Did I lose mic? No? Okay? Okay. That's what Paul is saying here. Put differently, God's resurrection life of the future broke into the present in Jesus Christ so that we can no longer fear death. Now let's think about this by way of application a little bit. Remember those questions? What's your view of death? Is your view of death and what's out the other side of it terrifying, uncertain, nebulous? We go into non-existence? Or is your view of death and what's out the other side of it beautiful and certain and hopeful and tangible? The psychiatrist Irvin Yalom has spent most of his professional career studying and writing about the fear of death. How would you like that to be your vocation? In his book, Staring at the Sun, Overcoming the Terror of Death, he writes this. Death itches. It itches all the time. It's always with us, scratching at some inner door, whirring softly, barely audible, just under the membrane of consciousness. Hidden and disguised, leaking out in a variety of symptoms, the fear of death is the wellspring of many of our worries, stresses, and conflicts. Now, even if he's half right in his assessment, that there is this, uh, effect, this subconscious effect of the fear of death on all of aspects of our lives, then if your view of death is one of despair and non-existence, boy, that's a real problem in this life, isn't it? But as Christians, if you believe that Jesus has been raised in advance of you, guaranteeing a future life beyond death, that changes everything for your hope and your perseverance and your perspective. It does. Well, so far we've seen this first idea that Christ's resurrection guarantees our, our future bodily resurrection. But secondly, Christ's resurrection guarantees the restoration of what it means to be truly human. It guarantees the restoration of what it means to be truly human. Look at verses 21 and 22. Pay attention to how Paul makes this contrast between two people. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Starting in these verses, Paul begins to reflect on God's original design for humanity based on Genesis 1 through 3. As he talks about resurrection, and he's going to relate resurrection to a new creation based on the original creation. So that in verses 21 and 22, he enters this contrast between Adam, the first man, and Jesus, the new man. But notice the contrast is not quite what we would expect. Look at it again. He isn't contrasting Adam as a man and Jesus as God. He's deliberately calling Jesus a man. By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Now, isn't that contrast interesting? Because what we would expect is that Paul would say, for as by a man came death, by God has come the resurrection of the dead. What's he emphasizing here? What's Paul emphasizing? Well, in creation, think about this. God created Adam in his image 
to be a ruler over all creation in wise and beautiful ways under God's kingly authority. But then when Adam and Eve sinned, evil and injustice and sin and brokenness are injected into the world. And as a result, what happens? Death. Death happens. So that from that time all the way to this time, all of us are born into a disordered, broken world with hearts that are infiltrated by sin that end up in our death. And as long then as death is inevitable for us, we are far less human than we were ever meant to be. Now you know this is true whether you admit it or not. You know that you're far less human than we were meant to be because of the reality of death. In the West, at good times, we can sort of be distanced from death. And we don't think about it so much. But all of us face those times when our loved one is getting really sick and approaching death. When we're diagnosed with cancer. When, like, in this neighborhood a couple weeks ago, there was a man who was who was tragically shot and killed, leaving behind a wife and three kids in our neighborhood. Um, when, you're, when you're seeing someone you love struggling and, and, and wrestling with disease, those times death comes near, and you know what we think? It shouldn't be this way. It's not right. You're right. It's not the way it should be. Death is unnatural for us. And as long as it still exists, we are less human than we we're ever meant to be. And that's when Jesus steps into the picture. Because Paul contrasts Jesus with Adam and says that Jesus then becomes the first truly authentic human being to ever live. Because in his resurrection, he outlasts death. He puts to an end all death. There's no more sin because of what he has done for us. So that Jesus becomes what Adam was supposed to be and do. He rules over creation in wise and beautiful ways under the Father's kingship for us. And when he comes and dies for us, what does he do? He submits himself to our sin, to our injustice, to our evil. Takes it upon himself, dies for it, rises again to cover it and forgive it. So that when Christ rises from the dead, he becomes the first representative of authentic, true humanity. Now let me ask you, isn't that what you want? Don't you want to be so truly authentic human? The only way we can get it is through Jesus. You see, a lot of us, whether you're a Christian or not, have this kind of view of Christianity. If you're not a Christian... Uh, you know what, if I follow Jesus, he's going to tell me to give up some cherished mode of my self-expression. I'm going to be constrained in this desire that I feel so deeply. Or if you are a Christian, many of us have a kind of a rule-bound, legalistic, dutiful faith where there's no joy, there's no freedom. It's all about what we need to deny and be against. But Jesus is risen from the dead. He's the most authentically, truly human being. And that when we're found in him by faith, what do we discover? We progressively become more of who God made us to be. As our desires are aligned with God's desires. As our loves are lined up with what he says is the best for us. 
And so we begin to live into a world in good and beautiful and just ways. We, and not in ways that leave us wanting and ashamed and guilty. And then finally, if you're found in Christ and we look forward to that day of resurrection when he returns and puts all things right, death will be no more and will be truly as truly human as we can possibly be. All because Jesus is raised from the dead. So Jesus' resurrection guarantees this restoration of what it means to be truly human. That was the second idea. Third, we can say that Christ's resurrection guarantees the perfect reordering of all things under God's reign. The perfect remaking of the world under Jesus is coming and guaranteed because Jesus is raised. This is the, the, the idea found in verses 23 through 28. Look at verse 24 through 27. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. All right. Paul here is envisioning nothing less than a future renewal, remaking of the heavens and the earth into the new creation. A day when Jesus returns, when he comes. And on that day, that day that's coming, evil will be destroyed, death will be undone, all systems of injustice will perish, all individuals and institutions and regimes that oppose God and persecute his people will be put to an end with God's justice. And all that will remain is beauty and hope and perfection in a world recreated by Jesus for us to enjoy with him. That's this grand vision of Jesus' return that's guaranteed by his resurrection. And best of all, in this world, in verse 28, we see this idea. In that world that's coming, God will be all in all. Meaning that all things will reflect and worship Jesus and God the Father as they were meant to be. As we ought. So that everything will work as it ought to work. Our bodies won't break down. Our joy will be complete. Our worship will be complete. Our fun and our play will be oriented to the worship of God forever. Now, another way to describe what I'm trying to, to paint a picture for you that Paul is speaking about here is to simply say this. The world that Jesus is bringing is the world that you all want. Whether you're a Christian or not, you want a world, and by the way, you can imagine a world where people are perfect, where justice is no more, when no one's hurt anymore, when there's no more tears, when everything works as it ought to work, you can imagine that kind of world. Why? Because all of us are made in the image of God, and he's promised that world's coming, and he's guaranteed it by Jesus' resurrection. So then if that's the promised future in Christ, how do we know it's going to happen, and when is it going to happen? Well, look again at verses 23 and 24. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then at that time comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. As I've 
emphasized the whole lot already. We know this is going to happen because Jesus is already raised from the dead. It's the guarantee. But when is this going to happen? When does the new creation, the new world occur? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 23, it happens at his coming. Now, this word coming, it's not clear in English, but in the original Greek, the word is very clear. It's a technical word that speaks of the royal visit or state visit of a king to his kingdom. Like when a king goes out to war and wins the battle and comes back to his home city and the inhabitants rejoice at the coming of the king. So what this is speaking to is that Jesus, there's coming a day when Jesus will return from heaven as the world's rightful king to be seen by all people back to the world which is his kingdom. And on that day he will remake everything. And so what we see is that our resurrection and the remaking of the world are of one piece at the same time. Now, if this is your future hope, then man, this changes everything for us in the present, doesn't it? It reimagines how you think about perseverance and evil and suffering. It does. I mean, think about it. Uh, when I think about my life, you know, I, I can get overwhelmed by the demands that are, that are on me, the stress that's in my life. Uh, I, I, can, I can be so sad with a friend whose marriage is really struggling. Uh, we, can, we can weep with our neighbors who are weeping right now over this, this, this shooting death. I mean, all these things, right, weigh on us. And we feel them deeply. But now add this future hope to it. You can cry and lament, but you can do it with hope. You can hang in there in the worst of situations because you have unbelievable resurrection power that's preparing and keeping you until this future day. So, so Christ's resurrection guarantees this perfect reordering of all things under God's rule in a world to come, which brings fantastic hope in the present. But fourth and finally, as we move towards conclusion here, we can say that Christ's resurrection specifically provides three things for us in the present. Hope, perseverance, and power from the second paragraph of our text, verse 29 through 34. Hope, perseverance, and power. And In a briefer fashion, I'll, I'll speak to these. Look at verse 29 first about hope. Specifically, hope when we're facing the death of a Christian loved one. Verse 29. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, let's just be honest. This, this sounds kind of bizarre. and It's kind of cryptic. Being baptized on the behalf of the dead, what does that mean? Well, historically, we're not exactly sure what the practice, this baptismal practice was in ancient Corinth in the, in the Corinthian church. But a very good uh, idea is this. This, this uh, part that says, baptized on behalf of the dead, can be translated also like this. Baptized for the sake of the dead. Baptized for the sake of the dead. And the idea would be, a Christian loved one is on their deathbed. And they have some non-Christian family that hasn't believed on Christ yet. And, and so this, this one who's dying says, say it's a mother to a son. Son, I love you so much. 
Jesus died and rose again for you. He loves you. I want you to know the faith that I have. And more than that, I want to be reunited with you after death in the world to come. Then, say, the mother passes away. And later on in life, the son embraces Jesus, becomes a Christian, and says, I want baptism. I need the mark of a Christian. And part of the reason he wants to do that is to have a guarantee, a physical mark of water on his body, that he'll be reunited with his mother in the life to come. So it says, baptized for the sake of, in memory of, in hope of reuniting with our loved ones who have already passed away in Christ. Now, whether or not that's a fair description of this practice, I don't want you to miss the larger principle, okay? You can kind of almost forget what I just said, and don't miss this really important application point. Because of the resurrection, we can have unshakable hope when facing the death of a Christian loved one. We have a guarantee that we will be reunited with them after death and the life to come. It's this beautiful hope. And more than that, it's this tangible vision that in the new world, we're going to run and sing and play and dance along with our loved one, along with Jesus. It's a very tangible future hope. And this is so awesome. I mean, I think about my own life. I have a sister who died when I was three years old. I've never, like, actually played with her in this world. But I will play with her in the world to come because Jesus is risen from the dead. I know some of you here have a recent death of loved ones or are facing that now. This is the hope that we have. Well, also because of resurrection in the present, we can have perseverance and self-sacrifice. Perseverance and self-sacrifice. Look at verses 30 through 32. We are in danger. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul simply saying, I'm suffering right now for the gospel. I'm being persecuted how can I endure it? Why do, why do I put up with this? Because Jesus is raised from the dead and I have resurrection power to get me through it. Think about your life. Every single one of us right now has something, some place where you're being called to a level of self-sacrifice that's like too much for you. Could be in your marriage is really hard. A difficult parenting situation. Caring for aging parents. Uh, a needy friend, some place that you are just being called to self-sacrifice beyond what you think you can handle. The resurrection power of Jesus is what supplies the energy you need to get through it. But not just to get through it, to actually have joy, to have the capacity for joy in that kind of service. So perseverance and self-sacrifice. And finally, in conclusion, because of the resurrection, we can have power for self-denial against the pleasures of sin. We are sinners. I'm the sinner. I sin the same way, like 10,000 times, 10 years in a row. You know what I mean, right? That same thorn in the flesh sin that you have. I have that too. Ours, you know, might just be a little different, but it's all sin. How do we get through that? How do we make progress? How do we fight that? Well, look at verse 32 through 34. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. Do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is making a hypothetical and logical argument. Hypothetically, if there's no resurrection, Jesus hasn't been raised, 
then go ahead and sin all you want. doesn't matter. But because he has been raised, we're different. We're changed. So much so that uh, a Christian isn't someone who says, I'm going to stop sinning. You know what a Christian says? I need not any longer because Jesus is raised from the dead. I don't have to sin in that way any longer because Jesus' resurrection power has changed me. A Christian is someone who says, that's not my truest identity, this sin that I feel like defines me. Jesus defines me. His life defines me. His resurrection defines me. The identity that he's declared to be the case in the new world is already present somehow by his spirit now, so I am changed. I need not any longer. So when you fight sin, don't say, stop it. Don't do it. Say, I need not any longer. And then pray this beautiful, simple Christian prayer. Uh, Come, Lord Jesus, come. I think that's one of the most beautiful Christian prayers that you can pray. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Because that's the answer to all that we're looking for. So Christ, in summary, Christ's resurrection guarantees a future renewal of all things, changing us in the present. May you have that resurrection hope today. Let's pray. Jesus, we rejoice and extol your name, for you are our King. You are our resurrected Savior who died for our sin. You loved us so much that you died for our sin But then you rose again to become the authentically, truly human person, the prototype, we could even say, of who we are meant to be and will be in you one day. So I pray for those of us here that are doubting, ashamed, uh, who, who may not know you by faith yet, would you work on us by your spirit to give us hope? For those of us who are Christians that are, that are struggling and straining like we all are, give us new perseverance this day by your spirit as we look forward and lean in upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ for us. We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen.